Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you. Nice to be with you again. It's always a privilege to uh, have the chance to speak with you, and uh, and a special privilege to share Palm Sunday with you today. Um, If we were to study the life of Christ in the four Gospels, you'd discover that one-third of the material about Jesus focuses on this last week of his life, Passion Week, the week that begins with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter. The Gospel writers seem to be telling us that the most important part of Christ's earthly ministry occurred during these final days. Some of the words that come to us from these accounts Hosanna, confrontation, betrayal, denial, trial, scourging, crucifixion, tomb, resurrection. Reveal the range of intense experiences that occurred during those seven days. The week began with soaring shouts of praise, but it quickly tumbled into a dark pit through the duplicity of Judas, the deceit of Peter, the cowardice of his disciples, the conspiring of the religious leaders, and the ambivalence of Pilate. By Friday, Jesus hung between two thieves who argued over his true identity, one who cursed him and the other begged for his mercy. And then came the agony of death and the darkness of a borrowed tomb. I'd like you to stand as we read the Gospel lesson for Palm Sunday from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And if you'd like, please read along. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This day that we commemorate today, Palm Sunday, was at best a day of temporary triumph a day that begins with cheers and ends in tears. Many scholars believe that Jesus planned this parade for his arrival in Jerusalem for the final time. Throughout his ministry, he had resisted 
a lot of the public acclaim and hoopla. But on that day, he designed this dramatic entry to present himself as the Jewish Messiah at this most opportune moment, just before Passover when the city was packed with pilgrims. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, everyone thought that a regime change was about to take place. This was the day that the Jews had been praying for. They had been under the boot of Rome. They had been reduced to nothing more than a puppet state. They had no king because the Romans wouldn't let them have one. They could still appoint a high priest, but the Romans said, we have to approve whoever you choose. And to make sure that your high priest doesn't get any ideas about leading a revolt to create a Jewish state, well, we're going to keep all the ceremonial robes of your priest locked up in our guard towers. You can get them out for Passover and for your other holy days, but only if you behave yourselves. And in case the people who come to the temple get any crazy ideas, we've built this giant fortress, the Fortress of Antonia, that towers over your temple. That's right, we put it right next to your most precious structure, the center of your faith, the building that you cherish the most. Now your temple falls under the long shadow of our fortress, under the long shadow of Rome. And when you come from pass for Passover, you look up. And on the rooftops all around the temple, you will see soldiers with their spear tips gleaming in the sun. There are 600 of them on duty all the time. This fortress has four giant columns, and it stands 14 stories high. And we can look down on your temple courts to make sure that nothing gets out of hand. But despite the crippling power of the Romans, the Jews had not given up hope. The ancient prophecy said that a savior would come, that a king would come riding into Jerusalem to deliver God's people from the evil of the ungodly. They knew what the prophet Zechariah had said, I will guard my temple and protect it from invading armies. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Israel, of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem, and I will destroy the weapons used in battle. So finally, it was happening. Imagine with me what that day must have been like for the crowd that was gathered. Jerusalem, an occupied, oppressed city, hoping for a deliverer. The rabbis had said that the deliverance would come on Passover. It's Passover week. And what did they celebrate at Passover? Well, a time when Moses called his people to overthrow their oppressors and, and to launch a movement against Pharaoh. And God honored that faith, and he destroyed Pharaoh and his army, and that is what Jerusalem is celebrating. Only now, it's Rome, and the bad guy is Caesar. 
And there are hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world who have come to Jerusalem for this sacred feast. And as they fill the streets, a victory parade starts to form at the outskirts of the town, a two-mile procession straight to the heart of the holy city. And people turn to each other and say, this prophet from Nazareth, Jesus, he's the one. He has to be. Overwhelmed with joy, the people begin to cry out, Jesus is the new king of Israel. Wow. Praise God. Hosanna, save us now. Quick, take off your coats and lay them down in the road in front of him. And run and cut branches from the trees and lay those down too. And he's closer now. And the people are yelling, praise the son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. And the Passover pilgrims are singing the ancient song, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they think to himself, he will finally remove the pagan Romans from power. He will ride right up to the fortress of Antonia, and he will drive them out. And Jesus is coming this way now, rocking slightly as he rides down the steep hill from the Mount of Olives. And people are waving and shouting, and he's riding on a donkey colt. And it was just like the prophecy from Zechariah. The donkey was a noble beast in that time. Generals and kings rode horses only when they went off to war. But when a king came in peace, he rode on a donkey. And this was the sign to the people that Jesus was a different kind of conqueror than they had anticipated. Instead, he was a prince of peace. And Jesus wasn't arriving like the arrogant Roman generals on their war horses. He's coming in humility like Solomon, the son of David, who rode on a mule through this very same Kidron Valley when he came into Jerusalem to take up the throne as king. And Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives, where the prophets had said the Messiah would come. And even though he was not exactly what they hoped for, their cheers that greeted him were deafening. It was as if the crowd briefly understood who this Jesus was and what he had come to do. But what was ecstasy for some was excessive to others. The soaring spirits of the crowd were not enough to sway the stern and sour Pharisees. Their hearts weren't filled with joy, but with judgment. They worried that this flurry of emotionalism would sweep through the gates of Jerusalem. Beneath the surface, they were most concerned that Jesus would call into question their integrity and their motives that he would undermine their authority, that he would threaten their job security. And they warned Jesus that he really should get a handle on his followers before this demonstration went too far. According to them, the crowd was misinformed, their emotion misguided, their praise a mistake. But Jesus answered them saying, in essence, If the people don't shout, creation will have to. 
His answer suggested that even the stones knew more about what was taking place than these religious leaders. How stubborn they were to stand silent when they were surrounded by such worship. So much education, yet so little understanding. So many rules, yet so little love. Such indifference couldn't have been more tragic. Ann Weems writes in her wonderful book, Kneeling in Jerusalem, a poem entitled Between Parades. How we love a parade. In a frenzy of celebration, we gladly focus on Jesus and generously throw down our coats and palms in his path. And we can shout praise loudly enough to make a Pharisee complain. It's all so good, the parade. It's between parades that we don't do so well. For we forget our hosannas between parades. The stones will have to shout because we won't. Jesus had been drawing crowds like this throughout most of his ministry. The people rushed to meet him wherever he went. They brought their children to be blessed by him. Relatives brought their loved ones to be touched and healed by him. The things that he did were awe-inspiring. Blind eyes were made to see. Crippled legs jumped to their feet. Those who were bedridden now surged with strength. The words that he had spoken had this ring of truth and authenticity to them. They pierced people to their hearts. And the authority of his presence was commanding and compelling. And people came away from these encounters with Jesus feeling something that they had felt far too scarcely. They felt hopeful. The crowd that had lined the road to Jerusalem was mostly made up of Galileans, welcoming their local hero to this moment of triumph. They were not fanatics or extremists. They were ordinary people who respected Jesus as a teacher, as a healer. And they were open to the possibility that he might be the Messiah. And that caused them to be willing, even eager, to wave some palm branches. They were like a lot of people in our day who find it easy to jump on a bandwagon, to cheer on a popular hero as long as everybody else is doing it, as long as it's convenient, not too costly. But such popular appeal is often superficial, fleeting. A wise sage once said, fame is written in ice, and eventually the sun comes out. Jesus acknowledged this as well when he said, the road to destruction is broad and crowded. The road to life is narrow, and few people find it. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and everyone shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, the warrior king. But Jesus wouldn't fight. He refused to claim the title. 
And this is precisely why the crowds in Jerusalem changed their minds between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Sometimes people think that it doesn't make sense that the tide could turn so fast against Jesus. It absolutely makes sense. Because on Palm Sunday, they thought, here's the revolution. But Jesus would not lead the overthrow that they wanted. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem marked the end of the wave of popularity and public approval for Jesus. As the week unfolded, it was as if his personal magnetism had reversed itself. The throngs that had wanted to be so near to him at the beginning of the week, they began to disperse so that by the end of the week, even his closest friends knew that they should keep their distance. A deadly coalition formed among the temple hierarchy and the Roman government and a traitor in his inner circle. And the hard sayings and the uncompromising challenges Jesus issued during his last days caused many of his followers to abandon him. The ambivalence begins to set in on Palm Sunday, on this day of temporary triumph. The parade would quickly turn into a funeral procession. The road winds and mounts steeply as you approach Jerusalem. And then it levels out so the entire city comes into view. For every Jew who crested that hill on the annual Passover pilgrimage, it was a breathtaking sight. But for Jesus, it was heart-wrenching. Luke 19.41 tells us, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And the word that Luke uses to describe his weeping is a very strong one. It conveys the impression of convulsive sobbing. What did Jesus see out before him that would stir such an outpouring of emotion? Well, certainly he knew what awaited him there. An agonizing, humiliating death. He knew that soon those shouts of adoration would turn into cursing screams. But even knowing all of this, Jesus did not weep for himself. He wept for the holy city. If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming among you. Jesus saw Jerusalem's horrific future. The legions of soldiers converging upon the city with swords drawn, catapults cocked, battering rams driving against the gates. He saw the bloodshed 
heard the shrieks of terror. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70 when the city was once again packed with Passover pilgrims. And the Roman soldiers surrounded the walls and kept everyone from entering or leaving. Cut off from supplies, the residents of the city resorted to eating the leather from their belts and sandals. Many starved to death. And when the Romans stormed Jerusalem, over a million Jews died. And those who survived were carried off to slavery. But how far could Jesus see that day as he looked out over the holy city? His heart must have been wrecked by the future generations that would not recognize the time of God's coming among them. He wept because there were so few who understood that he had come to bring peace for this life and for the next. But they had not seen And now it would be hidden from their eyes. Even as the disciples could not fully understand what awaited him in the next few days, while he sweated blood in Gethsemane, they took naps. They had made all kinds of promises at nightfall, but by daylight they made tracks. They deserted and denied him. And when he walked toward Golgotha, carrying the burden of a cross, his back torn by a scourge, a crown of thorns gouging his scalp, he stumbled. He needed someone to bear the weight of the cross for him, with him. Surely one of his disciples would leap from the crowd to volunteer. But instead, a stranger had to be drafted to bear the cross. Where were those impassioned followers who had shouted so loudly, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Long gone. We hear a lot about the voice of the people. Vox populi. It's a fickle voice. The voice of the people cannot be relied upon because crowds have very short memories and the applause ends all too quickly. Palm Sunday leaves us with a strange uneasiness. There are two moods to the day. There's the festive frenzy which we like to remember and recreate. But there is a somber side which is steeped in anguish. The day began in joyous celebration, but it ended with Jesus sobbing convulsively as he looked upon the holy city. He was so very near to Jerusalem, and yet Jerusalem was so far from him. The pain of that thought was almost too much for him to bear. There are two occasions in the New Testament where Jesus wept. The first was when he heard of the death of his dear friend Lazarus. He wept, but his tears were a prelude to a miracle. 
a resurrection. He called Lazarus to come out of his tomb, and he did. But on Palm Sunday, the city of Jerusalem came into view. He wept over the death of this holy city. He had persistently explained his mission within its walls, but they never got the message. And he called Jerusalem to come forth, but it didn't. There was a little girl named April who had grown up in the foster system, one home after another as a coping mechanism for dealing with all of the temporary things in her life, she had withdrawn more and more into a world of fantasy and dreams. She finally was placed in the home of an elderly couple who had 15 kids committed to their care, largely because of the income that this provided for them. They were hard and cruel in their treatment of their foster children. But somehow April still found joy in the little world that she had made for herself. And she would write down poems and songs and then put them into envelopes to mail to someone. The old couple was suspicious that she might be writing to the authorities about their harsh discipline, so they forbade her from sending any more letters One day, the old woman saw April stuff a note into an envelope and then climb a tree where she wedged the letter tightly between two limbs. The woman told her husband to climb a ladder and take the note from the fork in the tree. And when he brought it down, they opened it and read it. It said only this, whoever finds this note, I love you. In the same way, Jesus persisted in going to Jerusalem. He went there with a powerful, transforming, hope-filled message. He told them time and time again, whoever opens their heart to me, I love you. But on Palm Sunday, day of temporary triumph, he wept inconsolably because he knew that they would not respond. Instead of the bright promise that he had offered to them, now he pronounced a dreaded prophecy with sobbing and tears. The saddest truth of all is that Jesus still weeps for those who reject his love and his mercy. He still cries for the crowds that follow only in the bright sunshine but who turn away when the road veers toward the cross. He still cries for the Pharisees among us who are so sure of our own goodness and so unwilling to admit our need for a Savior. He still cries for the suspicious souls who believe that the good news is really too good to be true. G.A. Studdard Kennedy, who was a World War I chaplain, he wrote these piercing words in a poem titled Indifference. 
When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For these were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to our town, we simply passed him by. We never hurt a hair on him. We only let him die. For men and women had grown more tender and we would not give him pain. We only passed him on the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them for they know not what they do. And still it rained the winter rain and drenched him through and through. The crowds went home in our town and left without a soul to see. As Jesus crouched against a wall and cried out, give me Calvary. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you with waving palms and joyous songs. But just as the hosannas turn to cries of crucify, we know that our praise can turn to scorn by lives that fail to honor you. So we ask that you would claim us and redeem us and transform us. Call forth from us not only our praise, but our hearts made new by your love. Let it be so. We pray it in your precious name.